Welcome. This recording is from the What is Emotional Health and Why is It Important conversation that took place on Saturday, August 27, 2022, between Ken Schumann and Jim Harrington. Thanks for listening. Yeah, so uh, he, uh, he is the co-founder of Leader's Journey. And uh, Jim, you can correct me, but uh, mainly they are focused on, focused on leaders and business leaders. And uh, so we do some similar things. Uh, Jim and I have been partnered in ministry for all, 30 years or so now, uh, which is a long time. I was two when we started. Uh, and uh, yeah, we've, we've just been doing things together. I've learned so much with him. I've learned so much from him. And I felt like he would be an excellent choice to join me in this conversation today. So let me encourage you, please mute your microphones. And uh, Jim, let's get started. Uh, we we advertised and said we were going to answer the question, what is emotional health and why is it important? Why don't we start with that first question? And uh, let's just talk about what. So from your perspective, what is emotional health? Well, uh, let me say thanks. I'm really glad to be here. I do see a lot of familiar faces and a lot of faces that I don't know, but I'm always uh, the, the work that we're working on today has been foundational and instrumental in my own life, and I'm always glad to uh, be a part of a community that's trying to learn that kind of stuff. Uh, and let me also say, my wife will say that somebody will ask me what time it is, and I'll tell them how to build a clock. And so, Ken, at any point, you can do like this and say, get to the bottom line. Uh, I would answer, I, so here's how I would answer the question. I, I want to set it in a context. When I, so to answer the question about emotional maturity or emotional health, I want to say that, that, that your emotions are a part of your inner life. Uh, and, um, and I want to say it like this. In your human body, you have muscular subsystems, muscular systems, cardiovascular system, uh, uh, skeletal system. I don't, I can't name them all, but we know enough about the human body to know that's true. And what we know is every subsystem has to work well, and then it interacts with the other subsystems to, uh, to help the body function as a whole. So when I talk about emotional health or emotional maturity, I start with the uh, assertion or the assumption that I have an inner life that the inner life, like my exterior physical body, has uh, some component parts. And each of those component parts serves a purpose, has to do its part, and has to interact with the other parts. And so this isn't original with me, but Dallas Willard, David Benner, or a couple of the guys who would talk about... So when we talk about spirituality, sometimes we'll say something is spiritual, and, and what we mean is it's religious, or we mean it as an antonym, it's, it's, it's secular. It's not secular. When I talk about spiritual, I talk about your inner life and I talk about the four parts of your inner life are your thinking, your feeling, your will, your ability to decide, set goals, make decisions, and your passion. And so if you think of those like a four-legged stool, I grew up in a world where I got taught like uh, thinking was very valued, um, uh, willing, setting goals, achieving goals was very valued. Passion was considered sinful because it had to do with sex and lust, and uh, at least that's what I was told. Uh, and emotions were like good Christians didn't have emotions. Good Christians weren't afraid. 
they weren't sad. They weren't scared because of what Jesus had done for us on the cross. And so I came to be an adult uh, and um, had some pretty uh, scary, for me and for others around me, uh, experiences where my, my emotions were out of control. And it, it's been this lifelong journey of learning. Uh, and so what I would say is emotional health is the capacity to know what you're feeling and then to um, process what you're feeling in a healthy way, both for you and for the people around you. That's my simple, uh, straightforward definition is knowing what you're feeling and then and then being able to deal with your feelings in a way that is healthy for you and healthy for the people around you. Well, I, I know you have a little bit different definition. What would you say about that, Ken? Uh, well, I mean, gosh, all of that's good. I'm sitting here taking notes and writing it down, uh, Jim. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I think for me, uh, when, when I think about emotional health, I think about my ability to manage the anxiety and stress in my life <laughs> in healthy ways, not unhealthy ways. And, and for the first probably two thirds of my life, I, I didn't even know about that stuff, and I certainly didn't know how to how to manage it in healthy yeah. ways. Yeah. And and so and so I managed it in unhealthy ways that were destructive, uh, hurtful, harmful to me, to others around me. And so it's it's that ability, uh, and it's it's the ability. I think uh, one of the things that I that that's been really helpful for me is to distinguish learn the distinction between my feeling and my thinking mm -hmm. because in 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 the first two-thirds of my life that was just kind of one thing right you know I, I would even describe things and I know you you tell your story people would ask you what do you think and you tell them what you felt right right or vice versa or vice versa right right uh, and so and so it's it, just this idea of yeah how, how do I manage how do I manage all that internal stuff that I'm not aware of and that n nobody taught me about? The other thing I think I would say is, and so I grew up in a little small town and I grew up two miles out of town. So I grew up pretty country. And there was almost this thing that talking about that stuff was not okay. <laughs> that you, that you, you didn't talk about it. You didn't go get help for it. You didn't know where to go get help for it. And so for me, that's why this conversation is so important. Yeah, in my context, and I, I, I'm glad to have a contest with you about who grew up most country. <laughs> <laughs> I grew up in a little farming community in Northeast Louisiana. Uh, and not only was it not Christian to talk about that stuff, but it wasn't masculine to talk about that stuff. Mm -hmm. And so if you wanted to be a, you know, if you wanted to be a man's man, then you just, you just, uh, uh, internalize those feelings. I, I think it's an important thing as we're having that conversation to say, you don't get to decide if you're going to deal with your feelings or not. You're going to deal with them one way or the other. You can deal with them in a healthy way that we're going to talk about as this conversation unfolds. If you don't deal with them in the healthy way, then they're going to come out sideways. Right. They're going to they're going to come out as an ulcer or a heart attack. They're going to come out as a uh, you're being uh, really uh, not able to be present in uh, meaningful relationships and meaningful experiences. It's going to come out as a, 
uh, the straw that breaks the camel's back, you know, where somebody says something to you that seems a little innocuous, but you've been repressing or compartmentalizing your feelings all day long. And all of a sudden, all that comes exploding out and, and you, you know, you unload on somebody or it'll come out as passive aggressive behavior. All of those, if you've got any of that stuff going on, those are indicators to you that you've got some, some feelings that are, uh, that, that need to be processed. Um, the, the, there's a great book. I don't, I don't know how many of your readers, but if your readers, um, kind of a, one of the Bibles of this conversation is a, is a book called the, the body keeps the score. Uh, and it is a book that talks about the impact of internalizing emotions, compartmentalizing, repressing, doing that sort of thing. And it gives some healthy practices for physiologically how to deal with some of those emotions. So I think it's important to note that we're not going to, we don't get the option of not dealing with them. We get the option of, are we going to deal with them yeah. in a healthy way or an unhealthy way? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, you, you, uh, as you were talking about that, uh, Jim, you, you talked about you know, from a, from a masculine perspective. Uh -huh, uh -huh. And I just want to acknowledge that both you and I are white, older males, and we have our perspective and there are many other perspectives related to that, that we can't speak to. Uh, and just want to acknowledge that. But the fact that all people, I believe, uh, have these character have are thinking, feeling, willing, passionate people, and that all of us have unspoken rules about how we deal with our emotions right. and what's okay and what's not okay. Um, so one of the things that we talk a lot about in our work is emotional maturity. We use mm -hmm. that language. Mm -hmm. So would you just for a moment help, help us uh, think about so what's the difference or what's the similarity or how how is emotional health and mono, uh, and emotional maturity connected how are they connected hmm, that's a good question um, I think that emotional health uh, describes a set of practices there are there are practices that I learn to engage that as I engage them, I, uh, I increase my emotional health. I mean, I increase my emotional maturity. So physical health, there are some practices like walking or weightlifting, or uh, you, can, you can make your pick. And those are the emotional things you do for emotional health. And if you do those consistently and frequently over time, what happens is your physical health grows. Mm -hmm. uh, when, I, when I was about 35, I, I was running about two miles a day, two or three times a week. And I had a friend who invited me to run the Houston marathon with him. And he said, if you can run two miles, you can run a marathon. And I, <laughs> I thought that was the biggest bunch of malarkey I'd ever heard. <laughs> uh, but what he, what he did was there was some things that some things related to physical health that he just had me do every day, every other day, once a week. And as I did that, my physical strength grew over time. And so there's some practices that we're going to talk about that can grow your emotional uh, that, that are emotional health practices. And as you practice them faithfully and consistently over time, what happens is you become more and more mature. I would also say I'm almost 70 years old and I'm my emotional maturity is still being grown. It's not like 
there's a set of practices and I do them and I ran the marathon and now I'm done. Right. It's uh, at every stage of life. There are new challenges. You're different. The world around you is different. And so it's a never ending process. You just sucked all the wind out of me. <laughs> How's that? <laughs> you you mean you mean that uh, that I'm not going to get this perfected Ever. in the next three months? Ever. <laughs> Here's what I say to people. You'll never get it perfected. What will happen with the practices over time is that you'll grow your ability to recognize that you've done something unhealthy with your emotions. Mm -hmm. You'll have skills that you've been developing with the practices over time that can get you unstuck. So I, I was on a call the other day, and, and then you can go back to the a, a more mature response. I was on a call the other day with my partner, Trisha Taylor, and, uh, and um, shame has been a big deal in my own emotional journey. I, when, I, when I first uh, heard about shame, I said to uh, the person who's teaching it, I said, uh, I don't think I have any shame in my life. And she said, well, that's okay. <laughs> Just do the homework and see, see what's going on. And I came back a couple of weeks later and I said, gee, gee Willikers, I said, uh, uh, I, shame is the water that I swim in. <laughs> so I, I've had this lifelong journey of learning to uh, to have healthy practices when shame gets triggered. And in this call with Trisha the other day, I was able to say in a conversation, it was just she and I on a, on a Zoom call, I was able to say, hey, I, all of a sudden I am just covered up with shame. Hmm. And she said, oh, really? Tell me about that. We took about two. And, and so with shame, there's the, you know, the, uh, the, the courage, connection and compassion practices. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. I just for about two minutes talked about what had triggered my shame. Uh, mm -hmm. She responded very compassionately, invited me to do that. It was about mm -hmm. a five-minute conversation, and I was back to being able to be fully present in the in the meeting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I can remember a time where that shame would have kicked in, and it might have been a day or a week or a month before I could ever come back and look her in the eye and you know have mm -hmm. a have an honest conversation. So it never goes away. You just get better capacity, better skills at recognizing that you're you're acting in an emotionally unhealthy way and then stepping into, into more effective practices. Yeah. Yeah. It, it stirs this question for me, Jim. Uh, so so how did you identify what shame is or what is shame and how do you identify it? Maybe that's yeah. the better question. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so he here's the story, not just about shame, but about all the feeling stuff. Mm -hmm. I had a I had an experience when I was about 27 or 28 years old. I was on a church staff. If you've read some of the faith walking material, you've probably read this story. But I was on a church staff where the senior pastor called a Saturday morning meeting, and I was really angry that we were meeting on Saturday morning. Mm -hmm. so, there were six of us sitting around a table, <laughs> and somewhere in the meeting, my my anger boiled over. I shoved the table. Coffee went flying everywhere. I stuck my finger right in the face of my senior pastor and said, you can take my job and stick it where the sun doesn't shine. I'm going home. And I walked out. That was Saturday. Sunday, I went. I didn't sleep Saturday night. Sunday, I went to church. Didn't sleep. I hit a big enough church that we avoided each other. Sunday night, I didn't sleep. Monday, I went to staff meeting, and he met me at the door. And he said, look, we've got to have a conversation about what happened on Saturday. I said, I know, let's get it over. This is in the 70s. I think I'm about to get fired. And hmm. in the 70s, you get fired from ministry. You never have a ministry job again. We go into his office and he looks, we sit at two opposing love seats. And he said, you know, Jim, you're one of the finest young pastors that I've ever met. Like, whoa, 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 whoa. I, uh, th th that, it was very disorienting. 
He said, but there's some stuff going on inside of you that if you don't get it worked out, you're never going to live into all of who God created you to be. And then he said something that I heard really clearly. He said, if you're going to keep working here, <laughs> I heard that. He said, you're going to go see Joe tomorrow afternoon, Tuesday afternoon, and you're going to see Joe every Tuesday until Joe says you don't have to see him anymore. Joe was a counselor. And so I saw Joe and uh, that conversation with Preston Bright, who was my, my pastor, was transformative for me. It changed the trajectory of my life. So I'm seeing Joe and I'm about I'm about three months into seeing him every week. We've established some rapport. Uh, I really like him. He feels really safe to be around. And so he comes in one day, uh, one day and I'm, I start talking about something that's going on at the church. And I said, blah, 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 blah. And he said, really, tell me how you feel about that. And I said, blah, 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 blah. And he said, that's helpful information. But what I'm asking you is, how do you feel about that? One more time, he said, blah, 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 blah. I, I said that. And he said, Jim. That's really helpful information, but the question I'm asking is, how do you feel about that? And with some exasperation in my voice, I said, obviously, I don't know. You've asked the answer question three times, and I've given, I've apparently given the wrong answer. And he said, that's okay. He said, so uh, think about primary colors. He said, with the feeling world, you need some language to talk about your feelings. And the primary colors of feelings are mad, sad, glad, scared, guilt, and shame. Six colors, six feelings. Uh, and then he said, they occur on a continuum from a little bit irritated to livid. You know, that would be the mad continuum. Um, a, a little bit nervous to terrified. That would be the sad. You can do you can do each one of those. And so for a while, he just had me come in every time I'd come in and I'd say something and he'd say, how do you feel? And for a while, it was like, okay, I'm real sure I'm not glad. <laughs> I can rule that one out. Mm -hmm. And then I would begin to kind of sort through. Well, this story is going somewhere about three or four months into that process. I got really good at, at thinking about my feelings, naming them. And then he said, one day, he said, Jim, you've gotten really good at thinking about your feelings. He said, the next step in your emotional maturity is learning to feel your feelings. Mm. And that scared the bejeebers out of me mm -hmm. because I had some trauma in my background. I had some anger that I had. Um, mm -hmm. that I had uh, not processed. There was a lot of shame that I didn't, didn't even have any words to name, but there was this visceral response. And the end of that story is, uh, uh, is that over time, really slowly, and I want everybody to hear this, slowly, incrementally, but steadily. It wasn't like he had me dive into the deep end of the pool. He let me tip my toe in the water, and then he just helped me. Um, I get real emotional telling the story because it was really a, a trajectory changing experience for me. And it was, it was, it was one of those moments where I look back and recognize that if I can create a safe space for people, they're much more likely to feel their feelings than if I, you know, feel like I'm going to be judged or shamed or criticized or condemned. And so th that was the beginning. Uh, and then uh, like practice, 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 practice was how, mm -hmm. um, how I, um, you know, then learned to uh, learn to do all that. And, and it's probably one more thing I'd say. This is not true for everybody, but uh, I had some background noise that had to be dealt with, anger, that was the, the trauma. Uh, I couldn't get to the present stuff until I dealt with some of the past. And so we dealt with some of that. But even when I had done all, most of that work, there is still work. My autopilot is to shut off my feelings. Like if the conversation gets anxious, mm -hmm. I'm likely to either overfunction or to do conflict. 
uh, and my, my my emotions get tucked, you know, tucked down in my stomach somewhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I've grown my capacity to, you know, even when I don't do it in the moment, after the fact, there's a never ending job of un- unpacking the feelings and processing what's going on there. I, I don't yeah. know if I answered your question. You did. Yeah, okay. you answered it. <laughs> And it and it stirs up multiple more questions for me. <laughs> um, I, I think I want to make a comment though first, and oh. and that is, um, you you were extremely fortunate as a young pastor to have a pastor oh. that knew how to get oh. you help. Oh, <laughs> like trajectory changing, right? Yeah. Uh, in in my own life and ministry, uh, my first couple of pastors had no clue yeah. about emotional health and maturity. Yeah. And they didn't know how to help themselves, let alone help me. And, and I think that's the key. And, and in, in my first role uh, as senior pastor, I didn't have understanding about it. I didn't know how to help people around it. And, and it wasn't until I began to deal with my own stuff mm-hmm. that I was able to help other people deal with their stuff. What was the stuff, Ken? Like, I mean, like, what, <laughs> what, what was the stuff that, what, what happened that made you think, I need to go get some help? Yeah, I, well, I think there were multiple things, Jim. I think, uh, I think there was a lot of anxiety uh, that I didn't know what to do with. Uh, there, when, I, when I was uh, really young, um, 26 or so, my, my senior pastor died of a heart attack. Uh, after, after he and I had played, played in a, in a, we played on the same team in a basketball league. He went home that evening and, and died at 50. Oh, wow. uh, and I was about 26 and I had no clue how to deal with that in my life. Mm. And it, it, it created enormous anxiety uh, I mean, literally, there were there were a few months where I woke up scared to death every day I was going to die, mm-hmm. and I and I and I and I couldn't understand that. You know, mm-hmm. again, the country boy from Danbury didn't know what to do with that. <laughs> uh, I think I think the thing that uh, obviously my journey with you uh, helped me when you were the executive director of Union Baptist Association that my congregation was a part of, you got us thinking this direction and you created safe places where we could deal with things, uh, which reminds me, uh, so two stories, and I'm going to try to be brief. The first story, uh, I'll never forget, I was in a small group you were leading, facilitating with a group of other other pastors that were my, my peers and my friends. Uh, from here in Houston. And uh, I got done sharing some piece of my story. And you said to me, wow, Ken, thank you so much for sharing. Uh, that was really moving. And it and it really makes me sad. And he said, and you said to me, uh, and, and you showed no, no emotion. And uh, and it, it's like you, you aren't feeling any of it. And I wonder where where the sadness is. And I didn't, I didn't have a freaking clue. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I, I didn't. And, and, and what that helped me do though, Jim was, it, it did two things. It helped me begin that journey of going back to my first formation and thinking about my childhood. 
uh, which which was good in many ways and not good in, in some ways. And it gave me permission to realize that there were pieces of my childhood that were okay to grieve that I had lost. Mm. And I didn't know how to do that. But what mm. the, the, the result was I had learned to stuff my tears away. Right. I didn't feel my feelings and I learned to stuff my tears away. And uh, uh, and so I had to go through that process of going back so that so that I could find the cause of, all right, when did you start stuffing your sadness and tears away and how do you get it back? Mm-hmm. And I tell people all the time, I'm a freaking cry baby now. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I, cry is, at the drop of, I cry at the drop of a hat. But uh, but that was one of the places that began that journey of emotional health. Mm-hmm. Uh, for me, the the second piece of that was I was at that congregation for 13 and a half years and had a lot of outward success. And I and I burned out. I experienced mm-hmm. burnout mm-hmm. and the burnout was not physical. It wasn't about working too hard. The burnout was internal. It was emotional. And looking back, I know now I did. At, and at that point, I had no clue why or where that came from. What I what I learned and realized in the in in the process of the last many years is that I learned that also in my first formation, mm-hmm. and I learned to take responsibility for my father's anxiety, mm-hmm. and and so then I entered into ministry thinking, oh, it's my responsibility to make sure everybody's happy and well, mm-hmm. and that and I burned out trying to accomplish that. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, and I can imagine that the, the folks on the call and others who are going to listen to this along the way will identify with that in a lot of different ways. Often, uh, when we're having this conversation, like that sounds really painful. Mm-hmm. Those stories sound really, they ultimately are liberating, but they mm-hmm. but the uh, the initial thing sounds really painful. And I think one of the things that you have to do to have credibility in a conversation like this is to say, um, this is a painful process. Yeah, it is a liberating process. I I, I give you my word. If you mm-hmm. do the work, it is a liberating mm-hmm. process. I think mm-hmm. it's uh, Edwin Friedman that I first heard say in his writing. I heard him say that if you want to grow your emotional maturity, you have to increase your pain tolerance. Yeah, and like with my my initial counselor, you don't have to dive into the deep end of the pool. Uh, you can tip your toe in the water and yeah. and go there gradually. The other thing that came up for me as I was listening to you, actually, you started those two stories by talking about how fortunate I was to have Preston Bright, who was such a right. kind, uh, insightful man. There are people on this call today who have tried to do some of this work and uh, you got shamed, you got judged, uh, you got laughed at. Uh, mm-hmm. you, you had a painful experience in trying to do it and, and it just doubles down on your commitment not to do the work. Uh, and I can't overstress the importance of starting, uh, with a safe person. I think it's yeah. Renee Brown who says, entrust your story to people who are worthy of your, uh, you know, mm-hmm. of, of hearing that story. Uh, and so a, a spiritual director, a counselor, a coach, um, somebody in the faith walking community who has, who has some background and experience with all that, um, particularly if you have trauma in your life or if you have, uh, you know, if you grew up in some really painful experiences, finding a safe place, going slow and doing that work over time 
seems like a really important uh, uh, thing to, to put in the space. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, Jim. And you've mentioned trauma a couple of times. And, and I want to say, so for most of my life, if you'd have said, hey, did you experience any trauma growing up? I would have said no. <laughs> no, there was no trauma. <laughs> and, the, and the reality is, the more I've grown in my awareness, the more I recognize, yes, there was trauma. Yeah. It, it may not have been as severe as some other trauma, but there were some traumatic moments in my life that impacted me that 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 are deep within me and that I'm reacting to without even being aware of. So, uh, yeah. Really good. Yeah. That's really good. I, I want to come back to one more thing that you said. You use some language that maybe everybody on the call is familiar with, but you use the language of first formation. Yeah. Um, I want to do a little theological reflection about that. In, in Paul's letters, uh, he, uh, you know, he talks about taking off the old self and putting on the new self. And as a, uh, I grew up as an evangelical and in the evangelical world, uh, what that, that was like a spiritual transaction where you confessed mm -hmm. that you were a sinner who needed a savior and you invited Jesus into your life. And that got your place in heaven secured. Um, I'm not a, I'm not a biblical scholar. I am a student of the Bible, but I'm not a biblical scholar, but Steve Cuss is Steve's a pastor out in Denver. He wrote a book called uh, leadership anxiety, yours and theirs. And the whole second chapter does what I'm about to do. Uh, the whole second chapter says that in the book of Romans, uh, Paul uses um, uh, the word for sin 46 times. Two times, it's the verb form that says sin is something that you do. 44 times, he uses the noun form. Sin is a way of being. And so the way of being, as Steve unpacks this, this way of being is that when I am fully alive, when my if we go back to my definition of spirituality, my feelings, my thoughts, my will, my, my, uh, my volition, if all of that's functioning and healthy and all of those legs are not only working well, but interacting with each other, then I am, I am flourishing as a human being. And when I'm flourishing as a human being, what that means is uh, that I have, I have a high level of capacity to be connected to God, to be connected to others and to be connected to myself. Love God, love your neighbor as you love yourself. I have a high level of capacity to do that. When, um, when sin enters in, not as something I do, but as a way of being, what happens is anxiety gets into me and I lose my capacity to have one part of my inner life function in a healthy way. And I lose my connection to God. I become afraid. I become ashamed. I lose my connection to others. I uh, the negative feelings emerge there, and I can become. Uh, I lose my connection to myself. Can become very filled with self hatred and 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 uh, uh, and uh, all those uh, things that uh, that that contribute to poor self esteem. So when Paul says take off the old self, he is actually. Uh, what he's saying to us is that you have a first formation. That's the language Ken used. He had a set of experiences with your parents, with your siblings, with your grandparents, with caregivers in your community, with teachers in your school. You had a set of experiences that uh, resulted in your seeing yourself and the world in a certain way. And it's not that the way you saw it was wrong, it was that the way you saw it was through the eyes of a five-year-old. So it's incomplete or an eight-year-old or a 10-year-old. And 
what happens in that first formation is you develop a set of relationships that, um, uh, that uh, I'm sorry, you develop a, a pattern of behavior about how to be safe in life, right? So my dad was this amazing human being, uh, high school, I mean, uh, all-American college football player, high school principal, football coach, superintendent of schools, ultimately, led the civil rights movement in the little uh, uh, segregated uh, deep south community that we lived in when order integration came. Loved by, when he, when he died, people came from all over the country to talk about what a great coach he'd been, what a great mentor he'd been. And what was also true was that uh, he, he had been, his parents were alcoholics. He'd been raised by his grandmother and he, she was shot and killed in his presence when, uh, when he was 14 years old. And so he had trauma in his life that had never been processed. And in mm -hmm. my growing up years, when his trauma got triggered, my home was a very dangerous place to live in. And so in my first formation with male authority figures, what would happen is I would come into a room and I would stand on the edge of the room. I would read the temperature of the room. I would watch to see what my dad was doing. And here's what I learned about myself. What you need or want doesn't matter. So don't draw attention to yourself. Don't ask for anything. Don't, you know, don't get noticed. And the, what I, the meaning that I made about the world was that authority figures are dangerous and they and if you're not really really careful they'll hurt you now it it would be an interesting conversation if i could tell you that story and say and one day i saw that and i just decided to quit doing that <laughs> but the thing about your first formation is you you can be your best self in christ you can put on your new self when relationships are good and everything's uh, going uh, going well but when anxiety shows up in relationships, unless you do some pretty intense, uh, some pretty serious discipleship work, what will happen is you'll revert to your first formation. And let's look at my hands. Anxiety goes up, our thinking processes go down, and all of us can give a little, a little bit of that. But we have a tipping point, and when we reach the tipping point, what we do is we revert to our first formation. And so I, I, we don't have time for me to tell them, but I could tell you a dozen stories in my adult life where I, when I finally realized that I was relating to all of the authority, male authority figures in my life, exactly the way that I was relating to my dad. Mm -hmm. And learning to see that was the first step. One of the most important things that I did, maybe next to learning mad, sad, glad, scared, guilt and shame, when I began to see that I had some pattern behaviors of my old self. And so I learned to notice those. I, I, with practice, I disrupt them. And then I ask and answer the question. So if I'm taking off this old self, what's the self I'm putting on? And again, because the gospel I grew up with was kind of like magic. You know, if you just prayed the prayer, it was supposed to take care of it. And if you didn't, if you prayed the prayer and it didn't take care of it, then there was some hidden sin in your life or you weren't reading your Bible enough or something. But what Steve Cuss does, leadership anxiety, yours and theirs, uh, what he does is he talks about how we've got to practice the new self as well. Mm -hmm. And so let me finish the story by saying, and so when I first learned about courage, compassion, and connection as kind of three practices that would help you overcome shame, I wasn't very good at that. I would, I would get in shame and stay in shame for a long period of time until it just wore me mm -hmm. out. And then somebody would remind me of those practices and I, I began to do them. 
and it took a long time. It was a it was a several year process for me. I think I'm kind of a shame expert these days. Expert <laughs> at recognizing it. Expert at, at at you know when I see it, uh, getting out of it, helping helping other people see it, um, all of that. And so I wish we had time for everybody in the room to tell us about the first formation and about what are the patterns of behavior that your old self learned. If you could, if if nothing else came out of this call. But that for you, it would be worth the price of it. I know it's free, but it'd be worth the price of admission. Uh, mm-hmm. Because once you can begin to see the patterns, that just gives you access to something that when the patterns are back here operating invisibly, but very powerfully, it's just really hard to make much progress. It's really good, Jim. Yeah. Really right. good. Um I'm I'm gonna throw uh I'm gonna throw a little curveball. Okay. Yeah, you and I could sit here and talk about this all day long. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wonder if it would be helpful for us to to pause for five minutes. Uh. And let's let's just invite everybody to be still and quiet and be and just pause. Um, and during that time, as you as we pause, if there are questions for us. It, uh, send them to Angela, and, w- and when we come back, we'll we'll answer and ask the questions. But I know I could I could use a little bit of a mental recess here for a moment, just to kind of think about everything we've talked about. How would that work for everybody? That work? So it's ten forty two on my clock. So we're, we'll we're going to take a pause for five minutes until ten forty seven. We're just going to pause, and you do whatever you need to do in this time ponder and we'll come back and we'll answer some questions when we do. Yeah. (laughs) Why don't we use that as a segue, Jim, to, uh, so what, what are some of the practices Mm -hmm. that help a person uh, grow in emotional maturity, grow in emotional health. Uh, we'll we'll kind of, for me, I, I think we can we can kind of just overlap those two. Uh, but yeah, get us started. What what's yeah. one thing that a person could do? Well, I think Dallas Willard's uh, admonition in uh, uh, in his writing that in the noisy, busy world that we live in. Silence and solitude yeah. uh, are probably the two of the most important practices. And I want to describe that as a practice because when I first started learning to do those things, uh, I didn't like it. Um, I would get silent or I would get into some solitude. And what would happen is what was in me would come up. <laughs> the, the stuff that I'd been compartmentalizing or pressing mm-hmm. down mm-hmm. would come up. And it was like, oh, I don't want to do that. Uh, and I, I had a spiritual director at the time. And uh, as I was learning that skill and what she said to me was, it's OK. She said, do that for as long as you can do it. She asked me, she said, how long do you can you stay there without coming to a place of I don't want to do this? And I said, mm, maybe a minute and a half. And she said, and I was really ashamed when I said that, like, what a wimp, you know, you can't do this for a minute and a half. And she said, great. She said, before I see you next time, why don't you just keep practicing, stay in it as long as you can. 
and see if you can get to a place where you're doing it for three minutes. She didn't say 30 minutes. She said three minutes. And mm -hmm. I was only seeing her once every other week. And so, and over a two week period of time, I was able to grow that to three minutes. Mm -hmm. And, and, and then we were able to reflect on, so what helped you grow that? And I just kept growing my capacity to, uh, to, to be still, to be silent, to be in solitude. Um, and, um, I, so here's the other thing I want to say. I'm a Baptist. I grew up a Baptist guy. I'm not a Baptist guy anymore, but I grew up a Baptist guy. Uh, and the work of the Holy Spirit was really, really confusing to me. Uh, mostly what I learned about the Holy Spirit was taught to me by telling me what the assemblies of God people do is wrong. That was like, that's what I learned about the Holy Spirit. What I have discovered is that when I get still, um, I, I have thoughts that, that, like, as one person said to me yesterday, seem to come out of nowhere. That's the work of the Spirit. Paul prays for a spirit of wisdom and revelation. When we get still, even if it's still and it's pain, it's like, I'm, I don't want to do this. The Spirit will sometimes speak in that. Mm -hmm. um, and so, um, yeah, be kind to yourself, but grow your capacity. That's where I'd start. What would, yeah. you, what, what would be a practice you'd yeah. offer? Well, uh, I, I, I would... Uh... I, I want to make a connect and just and just say it uh, maybe a little differently. Okay. That that living uh, a reflective life, and that's what the silence and solitude is. Right. It, it gives right. space for reflection. Living a reflective life grows my awareness. Mm -hmm. The the two are connected. So the Holy Spirit joins in and and. God's voice and my voice join together and I, and, and I hear things and, and in, in my reflection time, I, I think for me, uh, Jim, you, you ask, oh, what I, I, I want to, I want to take what you just said and take it a, a little step further, uh, or to a different place. One of the things that I found extremely meaningful for me, it may not be for everybody, but I've found that uh, doing reflection and being outside and walking mm -hmm. all together mm -hmm. are a great practice for me in my own emotional health. Yeah. So, so there's some there's some evidence. Uh, I, I read a book called the The Willpower Instinct, mm -hmm. uh, which is a powerful book, and the the uh, the author, a, a woman, a uh, young woman, wrote the book, and and she said, if you if you want to know one magic formula, she said, I know everybody wants magic fairy dust, and they want <laughs> one magic formula for how to do it. She said the closest thing to it is get a minimum of five minutes of outdoor activity every day mm -hmm. and i and i take that to heart and i i add that to there's some there's some other study that talk about the benefits of a minimum of 30 minutes of walking every mm -hmm. day so for me i i want all of that and the way it works for me is so i try to take a 30 minute walk every day and i use that time as reflection done. Mm -hmm. So I don't listen to podcasts. I don't right. listen to music. Uh, I just, I just open my mind. And as I start my walk, I, I just pray and say, okay, God, 
speak to me, speak mm-hmm. in me, stir up what needs to be stirred up, help me to hear and, and, and think about what I, what I need to hear and think about. And, and for me, the combination of all that works. That may not yeah. work for everybody, but for me, it works. That's great. That's really great. I, I, I do the 30-minute walk every day, too. Your, your, your story lifts the conversation up in two ways for me. One is that when I think of spiritual disciplines, I think of prayer, fasting, silence, solitude, you know, the, the classical list. Mm-hmm. I don't think of walking. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things that you have done for me in uh, the in the faith walking work when we were doing what we used to call the 201 work, uh, you and, and Deborah Pulis wrote a uh, wrote the, the unit on um, on spiritual growth and development, and you helped to broaden my uh, my sense that spiritual uh, practices are anything that form your inner life. And so it's not just the classic spiritual disciplines. We're not saying don't do those, yeah. but it's it's walking, it's sitting on a park bench and and you know and reflecting in the in the pool of water mm-hmm. that's there. It's having mm-hmm. a it's having a, a really um, a rich meal with friends where there's. Mm-hmm. I was in I was in Holland, Michigan about a year ago, and we have some friends who are missionaries in Oman, and they were home, and we spent about three hours, and my my soul was just so full from mm-hmm. good food, good drink, a lot of laughter, a lot of storytelling. And I walked away thinking that was some of the best spiritual practice that I've engaged in in a long time. So so you, you lift that up by saying that spiritual disciplines are more than just the classic things. Yeah. The, the other thing that um, is in that conversation for me uh, is that I, again, I grew up in a tradition where we valued Bible reading and Bible memory and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, um, the goal was to do the work. And so in our, in our Sunday school yeah. that we went to, there was an envelope that we had that we turned in every Sunday. And there was a little set of boxes across the bottom. And you got 15% for being present and 25% for reading your Bible to 15% for bringing a, a friend. And like there were five or six things that they were measuring. And the question that they were asking was, did you do these things? You, when y'all were doing that work with the faith walking work, you helped to raise the question for me, to, to change the question from, am I doing these things to, are these things producing breakthrough? Yeah. Uh, and what I discovered was, and I, and I don't remember when we wrote that stuff, five or six, seven years ago, but I went through a season, you know, the Bible is so internalized in me because of the the upbringing that I have. I carry it around with me everywhere I go in my heart and in my head. I went through a season where I didn't read the Bible very much. Now I was interacting with the Bible all the time, but mm-hmm. I took on some practices that I, I said, it's not that the Bible's not valuable, but it's not producing any new breakthroughs for me. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. I began to look for other practices. And, and what that meant was I needed some clear goals that I was working on, mm-hmm. some emotional maturity goals. And then I could ask, <clears throat> you helped me learn to ask the question, are these spiritual practices moving me toward that goal? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's really, really helpful, Jim. And, and that, um, The key is the breakthrough, and the key is, I, 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 well, here's the thing, the, the spiritual practices are tools. They're tools that right. help me connect with God and right. help me grow in my own awareness, 
And so sometimes we get pushed back and say, oh, uh, y'all don't really do spiritual work. Y'all do this psychological work, right? Okay, I get, I get that. But spiritual work is psychological work. That's, that's why I like to start with my spirit is my thinking, my feeling, my willing, and my emotions. That is my inner life. Right. Uh, and so what's more spiritual than working on your inner life? Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, so one of the practices is find a way to spend time reflecting. Mm-hmm. What would be another practice that you that you would say would be helpful in this journey of growing? Uh, I, for me, one of the most powerful ones is the confession of sin. Uh, and I, it's so weird to hear me saying that because I grew up in this world of guilt and shame. And the last thing I wanted, like what I learned to do is to hide and pretend. Mm-hmm. But, but what I have discovered, again, with a coach or a spiritual director or counselor or even just a spiritual friend who is safe, I have discovered uh, that when I can talk about the places that I've missed the mark, mm-hmm. um, I, it, there's something about talking out loud about that, particularly in a shame-free environment, that gives me access to something. I, I, I don't know how anybody changes without several things. You need um, encouragement. You need support. You need wisdom. You need accountability how do you get those things unless there's somebody in your life that's saying, this is what I'm working on. And uh, this is a place that I missed the mark. Mm-hmm. And uh, so for me, that was uh, all the way back to Preston, right. And that conversation mm-hmm. that I told, you know, about uh, telling him what to do with my job. Uh, and then as I began to see Joe, that just along the way, there have been increasing, there's been an increasing practice of having some people in my life who know the goals that I'm working on in my in the development of my inner life, and who I can when I when I don't do well that I can say I didn't do well, and then it ties that it's it's most powerful when it ties to then the the thing you just mentioned where I can reflect on that I didn't disobey because I'm a bad person, I didn't disobey because I woke up this morning and said if I disobey God today oh well no big deal, there's something there about my inner life that needs to be learned and by saying it out loud to someone else, to God, and then reflecting on that, I get access mm-hmm. to uh, mm-hmm. some of the, some of the, I move from looking at the symptom to dealing with some of the underlying causes. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So con- confession would be a big one. Yeah. For me. And so I, you know, I grew up in a similar background. Right. When, when you, when you say confession of sin, I instantly feel angst. <laughs> You know, uh, all Tell I have is, about that. All I have is negative uh, yeah. feelings around that. Yeah. Uh, because in my in my first formation, my early childhood, it was a negative thing. It was you are a bad person. Mm-hmm. Quit being bad. Slap your hand. Uh, I so so as as you were describing it, you were describing we we need a safe community where we can be authentic and vulnerable about where we are in our journey. Yep. yep. And that's confession of sin. And faith walking is, uh, I mean, I, I, I have clients all over the world uh, and faith walking is perhaps the best, most safe community that I know where there are a, journey, a group of people who are journeying together, 
where they're, they're not coming, bringing me in to examine me and to work on me, but we're all working on each other. We're all working on ourselves and we're doing that in a way that vulnerability yeah. and authenticity is a, uh, is a, just a, a part of the normal way that we do life together. Yeah. And, and I would say in that, Jim, I think it's impossible to do this work without finding at yeah. least a person yeah. Yeah. Or, that I can be completely safe with. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and who's safe with me, which is why in faith walking, we make such a big deal of this is a safe place because mm -hmm. I have experiences where, it, and, and most of my experiences, because I was a church person, m most of my bad experiences happened in church. I didn't yeah. learn how to be a safe community in church. And, and, and I don't like saying that, uh, and I know that's not everybody's experience, but it's my experience. And so uh, finding safe community, helping create safe community where we can be authentic and, and vulnerable with one another, uh, I, I think is an important part of us being healthy and whole. Because mm -hmm. if, I can't, if I can't be authentic and vulnerable, then I stuff it and I hide it. And, and I, you said it earlier, but but what I stuff and hide eventually leaks out somewhere. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And sometimes it's not even just a leak. Sometimes it comes, it comes spewing out. Um, yeah. Good. Angela, do we have any questions that have come in? Yes, actually, this one is relevant to what you were just talking about. Somebody right. asked, criteria for finding a godly wise counselor and I would expand that to criteria for finding that kind of person who can be that safe community you could speak a little more to what that looks like <laughs> often the way that I respond to that question is that finding a spiritual director or a counselor or a coach uh, is uh, a lot like dating Right. I mean, the way you figure out who it is that you really want to connect to is that you you date and this one goes well and this one doesn't go well. Um, so to, to start with the idea that there's not a um, there's not a three point checklist that we can give you that it'll turn out well, um, that that's the place that I would start. I, I would also. Um, um, I think the other thing that I would say is talk to somebody in the faith walking community about people that they know. Uh, we refer people to counseling all the time. We we believe in counseling. We have, there, there's some spiritual directors on this call uh, that I know mm -hmm. and that um, that uh, would be available to you. Um, mm -hmm. uh, those those are the those are the responses that I would make. What would you say, Ken? Uh, well, the, I would say all of the above. And, and then uh, one of the things that we've done on the Faith Walking website is we have a page with with people that we know mm. that are connected to Faith Walking that either do spiritual direction or they do coaching or they do counseling mm -hmm. uh, from this framework. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not a very long list, unfortunately, right now. We want that list to grow. And so we would encourage people to help us to help us to do that. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, the, the things that have been said are, are, are the things that come to my mind to, to answer that question. It's a great question. I would question. say I'm going to send an email after this with some resources, and I'll include that website um, with that. Great. 
Great, Angela. Do you want another yeah. question or are you going to go, go for it? Give us another question. Okay. Um, one question was, what are some examples of trauma that I might not think of as trauma? Because you made several references yeah. to trauma happening and not realizing it, it was traumatic at the time. Hmm. Yeah. Can you give us a little insight into that? Um, I can dive in first uh, uh, because I was the one sharing that and, and just tell you what my trauma was. So, so my trauma was uh, from, from my earliest recollection is, is nine years old. I became my dad's helper and he owned his own construction business. And when he got home in the evening, I was supposed to meet him at the door of his truck. And I was to be his helper for the rest of that evening for whatever we needed to do to get ready for the day. And in hindsight, I, I, I see a whole lot more than I ever saw. Uh, my dad was, he never, it, it, I, I wouldn't have called him a highly anxious person, but he was highly anxious because he was trying to build a business. He was trying to raise a family. He was tr trying to support uh, his family. And so when he came home, he was anxious. I was nine years old and I was the best help he had. <laughs> so, so he didn't have much help. And so what would happen is what he learned in his first formation is that when anxiety gets overwhelming and, and, and when I was helping him and I didn't help him as perfectly as he needed it, eventually his anxiety would, would uh, overflow. And here's what would happen. He would yell at me, uh, belittle me and shame me. And then sometimes he would spank me. And he, he didn't spank me because I was a bad person. He spanked me because I didn't help him in the, in the way that he needed help. And all of that was his anxiety. So he wasn't a bad person. It was just his anxiety. And when you, when you have a whole childhood of experiences like that, that was trauma. That was traumatic. Now, growing up, I, and, and even as an adult, I would have said, well, that's just life. <laughs> that's just the way it is. You know, but the truth is, it was traumatic. And the truth is, it robbed me of some childhood uh, that, I, that I didn't get to have. Um, and again, I'm, I'm not throwing my dad under the bus. I'm not even blaming him because he did the very best he could with what he had. And he didn't have the tools of faith walking like I've gotten to have. Uh, but that's an example. Jim, do you have another example? Yeah, uh, I have uh, an experience. Uh, you know, I told you I had an All-American College football player dad growing up in the Deep South. And uh, I'm in what we call junior high school. It's called middle school now. And I decided that uh, I wanted my dad's approval. And so I'm going to try out for the football team. Uh, if any of you know who Barney Fife is, that's kind of the body that I grew up with. I'm five, eight. Uh, I, I was watching, uh, Barney recently on a, a rerun and somebody talked about him having chicken bones. And I thought, yeah, that's kind of who I am and, uh, or who I was. I, obviously I've gained some weight since I, uh, uh since I, I grew up, but, but in, in, in the middle school football experience, um, uh, I screwed up. Uh, I, actually, I wasn't able to do what they asked me to do, and I got clobbered. And the coach called me in the middle of a circle of people, uh, of, of my peers, and just ranted and raved about how weak and stupid I was. Mm. Uh, and it, it, it was humiliating. And um, 
And, and so, and it just happened once I quit the football team that, you know, that was, so, so let me, let me talk about trauma like this. There are, I think there are three kinds of trauma. Uh, what I just described to you was acute trauma. Like it happened once. It was a moment in time. It never happened again. Um, I, uh, th th then there's chronic trauma where like Ken grew up in a, in a setting where that happened to him. Over, he, he may be able to point back to an experience, but it happened so many times that it's, that it's called chronic trauma. And then there's com complex trauma and complex trauma is, and it could also be Ken's story is when uh, trauma happens at the ha hands of a primary caregiver. Um, in the in the world of trauma, they would say <clears throat> divorce, alcoholism, drug use, imprisonment, an accident, a house fire. They they, they have like five or six things like that that they say are like uh, automatically uh, um, named as trauma. And then I have a hundred conversations with people like Ken and people like me, where somebody might tell me a story like I just told or a story like Ken just told. <clears throat> and then I'll ask the question, so have you ever named that as trauma? And almost always the answer is no. And then the next thing is almost always it opens up something because there's this stuff tucked away inside of you. It's like a wound that if it had been yeah. a physical wound, they would have taken you to a doctor and gotten you some care. But because it's an emotional wound, even if it's a one-time thing that gets tucked away and doesn't get care, then once people could say, mm -hmm. oh, that's trauma, then it opens mm -hmm. up some opportunity for them to get some some care that, that can begin to heal that wound. Yeah. And I, I'm going to, I'm going to take us in a different direction because here's what oh. that stirs for me, Jim. So, yeah. so out of the trauma of my first formation, I developed a way of protecting myself, Yep. which was basically, I'm not going to let anybody treat me that way ever again. Mm -hmm. And so when authority figures showed up in my life and they were domineering or dominating or if I didn't feel like my voice was heard or if I felt like they were belittling me or shaming me I, I developed a passive aggressive way of being so I'd stuff it down stuff it down stuff it down because that's what I learned in my first formation with my father until it until I couldn't anymore and then it'd blow up and when it blew up it was really ugly and because I was in the church world, most of the time that it happened in a church environment. And that just felt horrible. How in the world can can this good Christian person uh, blow up in that way? And and my blow ups were the result of the the unresolved trauma in my life. So I had those hurtful experiences and I and I didn't get healing from it because I didn't know how and I didn't know where. And as a result, they they resulted in ways of me showing up in the world that I was embarrassed by mm -hmm. and that I later regretted, but I had but I but I but I was in bondage to it. Mm -hmm. And so I, I just want to bring up this idea that that our trauma creates wounds. We learn that way of protecting ourselves, and then we behave in ways that we're embarrassed later or ashamed by or that we we say well that we know that's not the approach and and most of that's not even in our awareness until we begin to do some work 
like what we're talking about today, to deal with our own emotional health so that we can get pat, get, so, so I'm not triggered nearly as bad by any of that stuff anymore. Mm -hmm. Why? Be because I've gotten some healing from it. Preach. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. <laughs> no, that's good stuff. That's really good stuff. Um, Ken, I, uh, you said pretty early on in this conversation that we're both white middle-aged men. I, I'm a little less middle-aged than you are, but I, I, I appreciate <laughs> the affirmation. I meant older men. <laughs> That's what I meant to say. Uh, we can keep thinking of ourselves as middle-aged for a little longer, but, uh, but I'll tell you who I'm learning from. I'm learning from women and from people of color. Mm -hmm. uh, um, I, I saw a meme back during the George Floyd uh, uh, when that was like in the center of the news and the meme said just be glad that people of color want justice and not revenge mm. and I, I, it led to a conversation for me with John Ogletree who's a good friend and a pastor African-American pastor here in, in Houston we've been friends for 30 years and and in that conversation um, he 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 had a we had a maybe a couple hour conversation about how um, uh trauma is a part of the African-American experience and they've had to learn how to manage their lives in the face of trauma. Mm. Um, there's this great book out there called My Grandmother's Hands. Uh, the subtitle is Racialized Trauma. It's by a guy named R-E-S-M-A-A, um, Resma Menachem. And um, um, when you're a white middle-class guy, uh, you have you have enough privilege around you that you can make a life work for you without having to deal with your trauma. You did, I did. Mm. Um, but there are there are people all around us who every day don't have the option of that. Mm. And the, uh, so so I'm I'm doing a lot of reading these days from women who know about trauma and from people of color who know about trauma and what their experience is like. Mm. Good. Another question, Angela? Yeah, um, we got a number of questions. I apologize in advance that we are only getting to a few of these, but one more just to take you in a little bit different direction back to spiritual practices. One person asked, what does stillness mean? We kept referring to stillness. What kind of thoughts do you allow? And can you give an example? So of stillness and quiet solitude, like what are you doing during that time? Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Well, how I think about that is uh, that it, it's, it's kind of like learning to crawl and then learning to walk and then learning to run. And in the early stages, what I'm trying to do is quiet my thoughts. And so I, I work real hard to, to not think anything. And one of the ways to do that is to is to have some kind of mantra that you use. You know, I breathe in. God loves me. I breathe out. I love God or something very similar, sim simple like that, that you uh, that, that you focus so that you're not not thinking, but you're you're shutting out all the anxious thoughts that you have. Uh, and as you practice that over time, you come to a place where you actually can sit for long periods of time and just do that that breathing exercise. Um, as you as you get better at that, and, and and hear me say it takes practice. Remember, I started out at a minute and a half, and over a over about a month period of time, just got to three minutes. Right, so it, it, it's it's like a discipline. It's like a practice. Um, 
when you get to the place that you can quiet your thoughts, then you begin to pay attention to your thoughts. But like Ken was describing, I'm out, I'm walking, I ask the Lord to speak. I, the Ephesian prayer, Ephesians 117, give me a spirit of wisdom and revelation. And I don't go to think about the fight that I had with this person or the big project that I've got coming up. I, I work on, again, quieting my thoughts. And then when a thought comes up, trusting that it's from the Holy Spirit, and paying attention to it. And and I'll often take my phone with me in my pocket. And when I have a thought like that, I'll write it down in my phone so that I can go back to, you know, to, to meditating. And then, but then I'll remember when I get home. That's like at a high level, how I think about the practice. Anything you'd add to that? Yeah, I, I come at that a little different. Okay, good. Uh, so, um, yeah, so stillness for me it, doesn't require physical. So what I'm wanting to do is is uh, I'm wa- I'm wanting to open my myself up to to really be able to hear God's voice. Mm-hmm. And so I don't try to stop all the thoughts. I just let them run and sort through them. And 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 but as they run and I sort through them, certain things hit me, and where my anxiety shows up, I, I just say a prayer about it. Okay, oh Lord, I'm anxious about you know this or or that, and and I say a prayer about it. And and sometimes I walk for thirty minutes, and and I never get any clarity, and there's never never any one thing. Okay, so I just want to acknowledge it's not a secret formula. And other times, five minutes into my walk. God speaks something deep in me, and and I spend the rest of my walk reflecting on that one thing. Uh, so I don't know that there's one formula, and I don't know that it's, okay, I'm going to get my mind completely still. It's I want to sort through all of this stuff and say, mm-hmm. okay, today, right now, what is it, God, that you really want me to focus on? That's, that's just kind of my thoughts on that. Well, I love that because uh, what you put on full display is that what I do works for me and what you do works for you. And they're different. There's right. not a, there's not a formula. There is a great little book out there uh, by a guy named Nathan Foster. He's the son of Richard Foster, who a lot of people know as a, as a kind of a spiritual guru. The name of his book is the making of an ordinary saint, the making of an ordinary saint. Um, and I, I find uh, he's a young guy. He's probably in his, I don't know, late 30s, early 40s. And uh, and he writes about some of this stuff uh, in a way that um, that could be useful to those of you who like to read and who, you know, who do find that as a, 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 a way of growing your capacity around some of this stuff. Angela, give us a couple more questions. Let's let's try to answer uh, a couple more if we can. Okay, um, here's one. How does our desire for control get triggered by these early emotional experiences that you referred to? Hmm. That's kind of a big uh, question. But... Yeah, Jim, if I could dive into that uh, yeah. first. Um, so for me, uh, my desire to control it is about my anxiety from my first formation. So it is a learned way of protecting myself. So. I would say it this way. The only way I feel safe is when when everything goes the way I want it to go. 
because when things don't go the way I want them to go, I'm out of control. And when I'm out of control, somewhere in the, in the process, I'm going to get hurt. And so the, the way I describe controlling behavior is, and by the way, being our, our desire to be controlling is, doesn't mean we're a bad person. What it means is that we have unresolved anxiety and the way we manage our anxiety in an unhealthy way is by trying to control our environment and control other people. And uh, yeah, I lost whatever other thought I was going to have, Jim. So why don't you? That's okay. Well, let me, let me, let me just pick up on what you said. I think one of the really big distinctions for me uh, has been distinguishing trying to control myself, which I think is a good thing. Yeah. Right. Trying to control other people, which is more problematic. Right. So, uh, in in the in the family systems world, we talk about the way anxiety shows up is conflict, distance, over under function, or projection. Those are four ways that that we give expression to our anxiety. And when I was learning about over functioning, uh, the, the the teacher said, "So what you have to do is you have to learn what belongs to you and what doesn't belong to you." Mm -hmm. And and then and then he said. And other people's behavior and feelings doesn't belong to you. Mm -hmm. And it was like and there was this internal shout <laughs> that said, no, that can't be true. Like, that's what I got taught. It meant like if a person feels bad, you try to help them feel better. If a person is doing something wrong, you try to help them do right. Yeah. And, the, and, and so uh, learning that I am not um with the exception of the children, the, the small children that we raise, right? There, there's even with the children that we raise a growing recognition that the more we can turn loose of them and let them be responsible for themselves, even if being responsible for themselves, they make mistakes and get hurt. Yeah. Because that's the way that they learn. Yeah. And so control, controlling me, managing my feelings, understanding what they are, processing them effectively, uh, but not trying to control other people. This is what I would yeah. say about them. And, and from that, if I could just summarize into, into two tools of, mm -hmm. around emotional health and maturity. One tool, first one is learning to take responsibility for myself and only mm -hmm. myself. Mm -hmm. what, what are all the things? So, so that's one. And the other one, that's what am I responsible for and what am I not responsible for? That's, that's about boundaries. Right. So what I'm so I'm not responsible, and I violate boundaries when I take responsibility for for someone else. And I just want to enter that phrase into the conversation. We haven't spoken about it much yet, but learning to establish and maintain clear self boundaries is a key piece of my own emotional health. And and Ken, every time we add something, you know, it's like okay, I, boundaries. That is a great intellectual idea. Yeah. But the way that you engage that, you got to know what one is. You need to read something. You need to talk to somebody, get some ideas about what boundaries are. What am I responsible for? What am I not? But then if I have a first formation, and particularly trauma will do this to you. If I have a first formation where what I've learned to do is that to be safe, I have to control everything in my environment. Mm -hmm. You're not going to you're not going to hear Ken say something about boundaries and say, oh, well, I'll just start doing that. Mm -hmm. like, it is a spiritual formation process that takes practice over time 
and uh, and uh, like we don't have time, but we could start with Angela and go to everybody on the deal. And everybody on the on the call today has some level of spiritual maturity that is giving you the life that you have. Yeah. And it's giving you that life and it's got some good things in it and it's got some bad things in it. And there's something about the human being is we would rather stay with the bad things that we know yeah. than risk the learning to do something different. Mm. And I, I just think the common theme from beginning to end of this call has been that it takes practice to grow maturity, emotional yeah. maturity. And I want to say this related to practice. Here's what I've learned about practice. Focus on one thing at a time. Mm -hmm. Don't focus on five things. We've talked about a hundred things today. Uh, focus on one thing at a time and practice it over and over every day. And in my experience, here's what I've learned about that. There are some great days of practice and I'm, <laughs> I, and I'm thinking, man, I'm doing great. I got this. And then, and then the third or the fourth day, yeah. I, I blow it completely. And I think, oh my gosh, I thought I had this. I thought I was doing so well. And, and I have a horrible day of practice. That's just part of the process. So I don't beat myself up. I dust myself off. I recommit and I start practicing again tomorrow. I have a client who says to me periodically, he says, I don't really have anything to work on today, but I stay in coaching because I know that I let myself off the hook or I get discouraged easily and I mm -hmm. need somebody to help me get back on, you know, get back up in the saddle. Yeah. Well, group, we, uh, we're, we're running out of time and I just want to say, I'm, I'm really glad you were here. I'm glad you participated in this with us. Um, a couple of things I, I, I want to say to you, uh, many of you are already in faith walking, and I just want to encourage you to keep that journey up, because what, what faith walking is about is we, we are attempting to help people in this journey of helping them with emotional health, helping them grow in emotional maturity, helping them deal with some of the trauma of their path, past so that they can uh, show up in the world uh, in a way that's more uh, whole and and that is uh that creates more well-being for everybody and we have some courses that are about to launch uh if if you're not affiliated or no faith walking uh we would encourage you to go onto our website and to uh look for uh faith walking foundations module one that that's a great place to begin uh, but we're also offering another course that uh if you if you just kind of want to try it out uh, I'm, I'm offering a course called Developing Capacity for Extraordinary Relationships, and it's a 10-week course. We're going to start at the second week of, uh, of September, and, uh, if, if you, and that might be a place to start. In the chat window, Angela has uh, given you our website, and we uh, invite you to uh, check out our website. Uh, starting in September, both Jim Harrington, who's here, and myself are offering a module one. I'm offering one during the day. He's offering one in the evening, and uh, and we'd love to have you uh, sign up and, and be a part of either of those with you. Angela is going to send you a little handout uh, with just a few little things from today uh, that we, we developed in advance. And, uh, and other information uh, about faith walking. 
um, it is it is uh, faithwalking.com, uh, but it's also faithwalking.us. Either one of those will get you to our website. Um, yeah, I, I'm just I'm thankful that you're interested. I'm thankful that you were here. Uh, thank you all so much. Angela, am I forgetting anything that I need to say? I'm having some technical issue sending the handout, but I will send it in an email after this call is over. Okay. Yeah. Thank you guys. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jim. Appreciate your time. Appreciate wow. you being here. Thank you for your expertise and Lots of fun. for the conversation.